Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello and welcome to part 10 of a multi-part series on the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's updated memo from April of 2019. Uh, This updates the memo from February of 2017. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about part three. I'm going to try to get through all of part three. I probably will not. Uh, But uh, if you recall, uh, there are three broad queries uh, that are made in this new uh, in the new format of, of the revised memo. The third query being, does the program work? Uh, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? This is the actual title of part three on page 13 of the memo. The preamble, which is new uh, from the update uh, from the prior um, uh, version from 2017, uh, talks about uh, how this area is one of the more difficult questions that a prosecutor will have to answer if they are evaluating a program. Uh, And I think it's one of the harder questions that a compliance officer uh, or person responsible, person or persons responsible for for a compliance program have to answer on a day-to-day basis is how do we measure the effectiveness of our uh, compliance programs. And they point out that the query is two-pronged for a prosecutor. It's, is the program working now? And was the program working at the time of the uh, misconduct that led to the investigation, the uh, alleged uh, criminal conduct in, in this case? Um, they, uh, in the preamble, talk about the fact, and I think I've mentioned this in a couple of these episodes, and I've certainly it's an important uh, concept around uh uh, the intersection of this guidance from the Department of Justice and the sentencing guidelines. Now, both the sentencing guidelines and the U.S. Attorney's Manual and this guidance point out that a program doesn't have to catch misconduct for it still to be deemed effective otherwise. So your query is not simply, has the misconduct hap- did the misconduct get caught by the program or not? Although there is some interesting sort of backtracking on that later in this in, in the next couple of pages that I'll get to in a second that's a little um, disconcerting but uh, they do in the preamble talk about uh, the US sentencing guidelines uh, chapter 8 uh, and cite that the program is not uh, fundamentally uh, ineffective necessarily rather ineffective because it didn't uh, prevent or deter or or even catch uh, the misconduct initially. Um, but uh, the query still has to be made, right? Um, and th- in, the, in the third paragraph of the preamble on page 13, uh, the memo goes on to say, when a prosecutor is af- uh, assessing the effectiveness at the time of misconduct, they should consider whether and how the misconduct was detected. Well, that seems to go back <laughs> <laughs> this notion that you don't have to detect it. Uh, what investigation resources were in place to investigate the, su- the suspected conduct and the nature and thoroughness of the company's remedial efforts. So um, if you don't detect it, I think that you need to uh, be prepared to show 
uh, what resources were in place around uh, uh, investigation and detection um, that, you know, and that those resources were reasonable and also um, need to be able to document the remediation efforts. That's going to be your only real, uh, uh, out of these three criteria, the only two things that you could possibly show because your pro if your program didn't catch it, it didn't catch it. Um, if the conduct happened and you caught it, well, then I think that that is going to go a long way towards showing that your program uh, was effective, uh, even though the conduct was able to occur and there was perhaps some remedial changes that need to be made to the controls so that the can't happen in the future. The fact that it was caught um, is, is going to be probably the main query. It goes a little bit against this notion that you don't have to catch it to still have an effective program, but, but not completely. But uh, uh, really focus on those three criteria. And uh, I think you need to be able to show uh, the resources that are in place, and this is the quote, resources were in place to investigate suspected misconduct. So this is going to be uh, really looking closely at what you have in place for investigations um, and what kind of systems you have in place, uh, both anonymous and otherwise. Uh, what is the uh, funnel for reporting and questions to come to the people responsible for the compliance program? One of the things we talked about earlier is that integration. Uh, is there is there integration? Is there, are you getting aggregate data from HR investigations and security and uh, the broad uh, management group? If you encourage people to go to their supervisor or manager to report, how are you capturing that information? Um, that's all I think going to be part of being able to show if there is an issue that you had um, a reasonable system, a well-resourced system in place. Uh, and if you're not getting that information, if it's not, uh, if there's if there's a disconnect, for example, between information that's reported to uh, HR and, and information that's reported directly to compliance, and you don't necessarily get that information even in an aggregate form, um, that's going to harm you in a lot of ways, but but also is going to harm you if you're trying to show that you had uh, a uh, 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 resources in place that were adequate. It goes on to talk about investment for compliance. Uh, again, kind of reiterating this notion that uh, the evidence that they're going to be looking for is resources, uh, things we were talking about a couple episodes ago with, with regards to the compliance function and those responsible for it, the stature. Uh, the resources, the autonomy of those responsible for the program. I think those are all things that are going to come into play. Um, when looking at the program as it stands now, uh, I think the key thing that any prosecutor reviewing your program is going to want to see is that you have uh, either made improvements or you have done, gone through the process to determine uh, what, what, what the failure, how the program failed, if the program failed at all, and how you're going to address that through improving your controls, your processes, your tools, uh, adding more resources for investigation or whatever it might be. Uh, they're looking for the response to the incident uh, to, to make an evaluation of the current status of the program. So now we proceed into part A on page 14, which is continuous improvement, periodic testing and review. So this is uh, getting a little bit more to the heart of how you evaluate your compliance program and what you should be doing. Uh, the first of the queries uh, in the section here uh, focus on internal audit. And these, again, kind of are carried over, of, again, from the 2017 memo, so it's not a lot of new information. 
these queries around internal audit are pretty straightforward. Um, they're looking into the actual substance of any audit plan over the last few years that had some sort of focus or had a particular focus on a compliance control. The questions are, what are the uh, processes for determining when there will be an internal audit? Um, if the audit occurred, what were the steps? What uh, were the results? Uh, did those audits occur when and um, what types of relevant audit findings and remediation progress have been reported to management and the board on a regular basis. So really uh, a lot of queries into the actual functioning of the audit process. The second area of queries around control testing. And the questions here are um, a little bit skewed towards this third party um, anti-corruption focus that we see throughout this memo. Um, one of the questions is more generally what uh, testing of controls and collection analysis of compliance data and interviews of employees and third parties does the co company undertake. Um, so uh, looking into your controls, uh, how they function, what uh, the, are the results of any, any kind of data or, or testing that's been done. And I think uh, although the question isn't asked here, the, the natural follow-up there is what has the company done with any information or findings from control testing. Uh, the next query is titled Evolving Updates, and this is uh, about how often you've gone through that periodic risk assessment and reviewed uh, the major components of your compliance program. Uh, and they particularly name out uh, compliance policies, procedures, and practices. Has the company undertaken a gap analysis to determine, determine if a particular area of risk is not sufficiently addressed in policy controls and training? So um, this really goes back to the heart of the matter of whether your, uh, uh, your program is risk-based, and that's both in the, de in the design of the program, but here we're talking about the evaluation of the program as well. That evaluation is also needs to be risk-based. The last area of query under Part A is culture of compliance, and this is culture survey. This is uh, uh, you know finding out, uh, having some sort of measure of the culture of compliance, the ethical culture at your organization. Uh, really, the most common and, and most pragmatic way to do that is, is through culture assessment, doing a culture survey. Um, one of the other questions here is, uh, does the company seek input from all levels of employees to determine whether they perceive senior and middle management's commitment to compliance? So right there, uh, that's one of your questions for your culture survey right there, is uh, do, I f you know, do you feel uh, that the management of the organization uh, uh, takes compliance seriously, uh, makes ethical decisions, um, you know, that whole line of inquiry around the relative ethics or the perception of ethics of the uh, compliance personnel, um, I mean, of the rank and file of not only the compliance personnel, but the, the management of the organization is really important. Part B of the last section of this memo, investigations of misconduct. And this was really all about uh, the resources behind uh, investigations. Are investigations properly scoped? Um, what happens after um, uh, the investigation? That's all um, where these queries for Part B are coming from. And in particular, they talk about 
the whether the function of the investigations is is properly um, handled. Uh, how's the company ensure that investigations have been scoped properly, were independent, objective, and appropriately conducted? Uh, have the company's investigations been used to identify root causes, system vulnerabilities? So what have you done? What's the response? What's the remediation on the back end? And how high up in the company do investigative finding go, findings go? In other words, do, do the findings go all the way up to the board of directors, or is there some sort of aggregate reporting to the board of directors about uh, investigations? Um, another key thing here that we've talked about in the past too is having some sort of consistent process. I think uh, if you have an investigation protocol or investigation um, um, handbook or, or plan or policy or strategy of some sort, some sort of methodology, uh, that needs to be well documented. Um, obviously, investigations need to be well resourced. That's mentioned not only here but in other parts of this memoranda. Um, and uh, the people that are running the investigations have to uh, have uh, the ability to, to take them where they go, to, to have some sort of authority over, over the direction of those investigations. And there has to be a proper response. There has to be a uh, documented response, I would say. Uh, that response might be, we are not going to take any action, but you need to be able to document the reasons why that would be. Okay, so somehow we've made it to the very last section of uh, part three, uh, and which is the last part of the memorandum. Uh, and that is C, analysis and remediation of any underlying misconduct. Uh, this, again, was material that was covered in the 2017 memo. There are some changes, some differences here uh, with, uh, with the focus, but um, for the most part, this covers uh, uh, the direction that uh, the department was going in, even with the earlier memorandum. The uh, introduction here in, in the second paragraph talks about how uh, prosecutors ought to endeavor to look into the past uh, experiences that the organization has had with misconduct and how uh, that uh, prior misconduct informed the program moving forward. And in other words, if there has been some sort of issue in the past, there's been misconduct, what remedial actions did the uh, organization take um, and how did that relate to the compliance program uh, uh, moving forward? Um, uses, particularly uses the term lessons learned. What did the organization learn from prior misconduct if there was prior misconduct and what improvements were made? Uh, so they're going to be, be taking a, a, a look back, so not only on potentially the misconduct that led to the current investigation that uh, might have prompted the review of the compliance program, but they may also be looking back. Um, the look back will also, according to this preamble talking in the third paragraph, this is all on page 16 of the memorandum, by the way, um, they should look at uh, any remedial actions take by, taken by the corporation, including disciplinary action uh, for past violators and past compliance programs. So when they do this look back, they're also going to be uh, taking a hard look at what the result, after the investigation was concluded, what the disciplinary results were. Um, were those high performers held to task? Were they properly disciplined? 
Um, and again, this doesn't necessarily have to do with the misconduct that has led to the investigation at this time, but it um, is part of the inquiry um, that might be launched by some other misconduct. So they're going to be taking a look back. The individual queries, and some of these are carryovers, including this uh, root cause analysis, which uh, was in the 2017 memo, which is the first query. What is the company's root cause analysis of the misconduct at issue? Were there some systemic issues identified? Who in the company was involved in making the analysis? So what, uh, uh, what kind of root cause analysis was undertaken? For instance, let's just take a straightforward example of uh, bullying in the workplace. Um, in the past, if uh, there were in individual instances of bullying um, that made up into a pattern and the organization took to uh, discipline individual instances but didn't do anything to uh, address the underlying culture that supported this bullying, uh, then that would not be probably deemed to be much of an effective root cause analysis of the actual misconduct in question. Uh, the, um, the other area of query here that's related, but this is new uh, to the 2019 memo, is prior weaknesses. What controls failed? If policies and procedures should have prohibited the misconduct, were they effectively implemented and have functions that have had ownership of these policies and procedures been held accountable. So um, kind of building upon that notion of have you really looked into the underlying problem uh, that led to the misconduct? Uh, have you looked into the controls around uh, and, and particularly policies and procedures um, that should have prevented that or, or addressed that particular issue? In the case of, let's go back to the, the bullying example I just gave, um, you know, if, if there's a um, uh, a uh, harassment policy um, or, or, or other materials, training uh, materials around that, uh, you'd have to take a close look at those and see, well, why are, why, why are we seeing this behavior? Um, are our policies not clear enough? Um, is our training not uh, reaching the population? Uh, do people just not take the training and the policies seriously? Uh, is there something else going on? Um, different, you know, messages or mixed messages coming from management about whether this is acceptable or not, even though we say it isn't in our policies and procedures. There's a lot of queries to be made here, and that's uh, what the expectations, I think, here are. Uh, and then uh, also a couple of new areas um, on payment systems and vendor management. And I'm sorry, at this point in the game, uh, 10 episodes in, I think you know how I feel about this. I think that these, this is definitely important. Uh, if you have uh, anti-corruption or other third-party um, uh, uh, compliance risk issues around vendors and around payment systems. But it's very clearly uh, lifted uh, from the work that the fraud section and uh, main justice does around anti-corruption. And, um, you know, uh, as we've talked about before, one size does not fit all. Uh, the expectation is is that if you're a smaller organization, you're going to have a, a less um, sophisticated and less resourced um, and mature program. Um, if you don't have risk uh, associated with vendors because uh, uh, or, or your your vendor risk is different uh, in, a, in in kind than somebody who has serious um, issues around that, and certainly payment systems is another one. 
then I think then that's going to be appropriate. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I feel like uh, we can get really into the weeds if we go down that road. And although we're already in the weeds in uh, 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 episode 10. Um, as in the 2017 memo, it talks about uh, prior indications. Uh, what were the missed opportunities along the way where this misconduct could have been uh, discovered? Uh, and what were the failures that led to it not being discovered, if there were any? Um, uh, were there complaints, uh, uh, other investigations that just missed the mark for some reason? Uh, that's all going to be part of your look back, uh, uh, your root cause analysis and, and review. Uh, but but uh, if there were prior indications of, of this misconduct and it was missed or the patterns weren't seen, uh, you're going to want to find out why that is and whether it could have been uh, picked up. Remediation, uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. What has the company done uh, based on the findings of the investigation and the look back on the controls and their success or relative success or, or, or non-success, as the case may be. And then lastly, the very last uh, uh, query in the very last section of this memo has to do with accountability. And this is new. It's been added uh, since 2017. Um, and this really focus on, focuses on what um, actions the organization takes uh, for those involved in misconduct, what disciplinary action did the company take in response to the misconduct? And was it timely? Were managers held accountable for misconduct? Did the company consider disciplinary actions for failures in supervision? What's the company's record, either the number and type of disciplinary actions on employees' discipline relating to this type of conduct and issue? So what, how do you discipline? What's the consistency? Is the consistency um, across the board, uh, regardless of, of um, uh, role in the organization, you're going to want to be able to document that uh, there is accountability, that discipline does happen, um, that there that it is uh, certainly consistent across the board. That's going to be important. Um, and then the last query here, which is interesting, has the company ever terminated or otherwise disciplined anyone uh, for this type of misconduct? So again, you're just going to want to document it, uh, whatever the results of the discipline might be. So that's it. We have reached the end, uh, finally, of uh, the uh, brand new, not so much anymore, uh, <laughs> April uh, guidance document from our friends at the U.S. Department of Justice. I think I'll probably do one more short podcast just kind of giving you some sum up and conclusions that I might have around this. I appreciate you sticking with me for this, and I hope that you found it helpful. Um, uh, we have some webinars coming up. I will announce those in upcoming podcasts. We have one coming up uh, fairly soon uh, where we're going to be talking about uh, board of directors' responsibilities. So please listen here uh, in the next week or two, and I'll give you more details about that. And hopefully we'll have a registration page up before too long for that. Uh, so if you have uh, some questions or need to work with your board of directors uh, with regards to their role in compliance, I would urge you uh, to uh, join us for that webinar coming up here. Um, I think it's going to be uh, later in July. Uh, but until next time, please do send your questions, comments, um, uh, any, uh, any questions you have for me. 
to compliancebeat.com. You can go to compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com or you can email me directly at any time at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Do love to hear from listeners. And so until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.